This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In a long-awaited verdict, the potential merger of media and communication giants Time Warner and AT&T has been approved by a district court judge. The Justice Department said that the $85.4 billion deal was bad for competition and pricing for consumers, but Judge Richard Leon disagreed. So what does this merger mean moving forward? We take a deeper look at that story with here in studio Herbert Hovenkamp, who is a professor at both the Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. Law School. And then on the phone, Hemant Bargava, who is chair in technology management at the University of California at Davis, and Eric Gordon, who's a business professor at the University of Michigan. Herb, great to see you again. Thank, Thank you for you. your time. Thank you. Hemant, Eric, great to have you joining us on the phone. Thank you both. Thank you, Dan. Same here. Thank you as well. Uh, Herb, give us your reaction to the to the uh, to the ruling by the judge by the judge yesterday. Well, uh This is a vertical merger case, which means it involves uh, two firms that stand or would stand in a buyer-seller relationship. AT&T owns DirecTV uh, and some cable companies. Uh, Time Warner owns programming, and of course, cable companies license programming from uh, people like Time Warner. Uh, The government's claims were that basically fell into three categories. Uh, One is that uh, the merger would enable uh, uh, AT&T, Turner, uh, AT&T, Time Warner to charge uh, rivals higher prices for Turner programming. Another one was that uh, the post-merger firm acting either on its own or with Comcast, a competitor, uh, would try to suppress the growth of so-called skinny bundles. These are offerings like Sling, DirecTV Now, YouTube uh, TV, and so on, which are, in fact, rapidly growing markets, even as traditional cable TV is shrinking. And the third theory was that uh, it would prevent AT&T's rival distributors from using HBO as a promotion tool. HBO has become one of the most successful of the, yep. pro, uh, of the uh, prog- programming venues uh, that Time Warner owns, and exclusive access to it could mean a, a major thing for certain, for, for certain subscribers. Uh, the court rejected all three theories, not on principle, at least that's my reading of the opinion, not because it said that these things were theoretically wrong, but rather because he didn't think that the facts uh, supported uh, the theories that the government was asserting. Uh, and then he gave the merger a complete clean slate. Uh, no conditions, no partial divestitures uh, or anything else. He even warned the government not to seek a stay, which is a delay of the merger uh, pending an appeal, which frankly could take a year or more. Uh, so that's kind of where we stand, and I fully expect that the merger will go forward. Eric, what's been your reaction to this? You know, I've tried to have a measured reaction because uh, some of the reactions have been pretty extreme. We have people who say, oh, my goodness, the floodgates will be open. Anybody can merge with anybody. We will have one company that controls everything. Um, And then we have other people who say the case doesn't seem to mean much. It's exclusive to the facts of the case. 
I think uh, in the big picture, it's somewhere in between. I think, uh, you know, the facts are pretty specific. The judge placed a lot of emphasis on which facts he chose. So he basically said that all of the evidence that the government put forward, including their economic expert, was evidence that he just didn't either believe or didn't think uh, was all that influential. Pretty much everything AT&T said, he said, you know, yeah, I'll buy that evidence. But, but here's why I think the case will be influential. The case recognizes, the judge recognized, that there are changing conditions in the media and entertainment business. And because of those changing conditions, um, reorganizing the way the assets are laid out, allowing combinations, might be good. He sort of cast A&T and T as the victim. He, he said that um, because of changes in the industry, AT&T is losing TV, losing subs, uh, video subscribers, um, that their ad revenue is going away to Facebook and Google. So he interpreted the industry situation as, as such that he, 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 he sort of applauded this merger uh, as maybe making AT&T more competitive given the changes. So I think the case is influential in that sense, but it's not the end of antitrust law. Hey, Matt? A um, couple of things to add to what Eric and Herb said. Dan, first, um, I would actually go back to some notes I made after our, our November conversation on this topic, which I think Herb explained the legal principles around this topic really, really well. And so I made those notes, and I will just say it in my own simplistic terms, that I understood the way these mergers should be uh, evaluated by a judge is really along this principle of innocent until proven guilty. So the merging entities really do not have a burden to prove that the merger would benefit consumers or even that it would not hurt consumers. The, government, the, the burden was on the government to prove that it would hurt consumers through higher prices, lower welfare, and to do that beyond reasonable doubt. And I think the main point here was that you could not prove this beyond reasonable doubt. There could be theories behind why this kind of vertical merger could increase prices, but there are also alternative theories around why the reverse might happen. Mm -hmm. And so that reasonable doubt exists. And I think that principle is going to be relevant again when these other potential mergers come through, the ones that are already there, the Disney Fox, the Sprint, T-Mobile, and, and others. Um, so I, I think that's really important to keep in mind, that, that this is an area which is pretty hard to predict the outcomes because so much is changing in these markets. But Hema, that, that, seemingly, that seemingly is one of the questions right now, is how this ruling will impact a lot of these other ones. And a lot yeah. of the reporting in, you know, in the last, uh, last several hours has been, well, seemingly this could open up a flood uh, of, of mergers, whether it be in the media industry or, or other areas. Or in other industries, absolutely. So I think what's important to keep in mind uh, is the media, and this is the point Eric made, uh, which is that, in fact, this is the first time, in, in my knowledge, in this kind of antitrust investigation, that some consideration was given to shifting market structure, right? And in the media and telecom industries, this market structure is shifting enormously, and that may not be the case 
in other industries where vertical merger cases come through. So, for example, if the Disney Fox, you know, if you were to talk about that, I think Disney and Fox can definitely make a point that market boundaries are shifting. They get their revenues from content, and there have been a slew of new content creators. Both there is the democratization of content creation, but then you have big players like Amazon, Netflix, Apple that are moving into the studio business. So they can make a claim that the market boundaries are shifting and that by merging, you cannot argue that the competition is diminishing. In other industries, that claim may not apply. So I think that that distinction has to be maintained. Herb? Yeah, I agree with both Eric and Heyman on, on these observations. It's important not to overread the breadth of this. This case was decided on its facts. The court did not strike out any theory and said this theory just won't work as a matter of law. The facts will always be different from one another. Uh, my guess is that the government, in addition to deciding whether to appeal, is going to you know do some head scratching and try to figure out what worked what didn't work so well, what could be made to work better. And finally, just one point that I think is critical, and it leaves the government in a hole right now, and that is in 1984, the government last issued merger guidelines that apply to uh, vertical mergers. We, ke mm -hmm. we keep revising the horizontal merger guidelines. Most recent ones were in 2010. Uh, but during the early 1980s, there was a general hostility towards uh, vertical uh, antitrust activity of all kinds, and the government just lost interest in vertical mergers. It's brought a few cases, almost uh, always settled by consent decree. The last litigated case with an opinion uh, was a case that the FTC lost in 1979. I think we are desperate at this point to develop some new vertical merger guidelines with some usable theory. There's been plenty of academic theory written about vertical mergers, mm -hmm. good theory, uh, but it needs to be put into guidelines that are readable by judges because the one thing we know from the horizontal guidelines is that the courts do follow them, and if they are convinced that a particular merger falls within the definitions that the guidelines establish, they're not unwilling to go ahead and condemn it. Eric? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. The, 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 the vertical thing is kind of interesting. If you go back to the law, which is the Clayton Act, an old law, an old sort of Teddy Roosevelt, old-style populist rabble-rouser um, from a wealthy family guy, uh, um, there's no there's no mention of vertical horizontal. It just talks about damage to con uh, to competition. Is there a reasonable probability? Is there an appreciable danger of damage to competition? The the economists showed up um, and made uh, what I think is a useful distinction: horizontal and vertical. And and the basic idea is well, since horizontal combines competitors, you go from two competitors to one, they're dangerous. Think of the pending uh, T-Mobile Sprint merger. It'll take two competitors and turn them into one. So that seems likely to be suspect. Vertical, you know, they started developing different ideas, as, as Herb mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, sort of a famous character, Robert Bork, wrote uh, a, a book that turned out to be really influential and said, 
Well, let's carve out vertical ones because, you know, when you integrate vertically, you can, you, you're probably going to get more efficient. And then if you're more efficient, you can lower the prices to consumers. And since you can lower your prices to consumers in a competitive market, you will lower your prices to consumers. And, uh, and everybody bought that. And it might have been true then it might still be true now, but not in all industries where uh, vertical mergers can give you control over a choke point, whether the choke point is distribution or supply, you know, the, the two questions that were up in the, in the, in the present case. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I agree with Herb. I, I think we've got to get interested again in examining vertical mergers and saying, now, when will a vertical merger give somebody choke point control and be bad? Let's not just assume that they're all going to be good right because hey man i mean i look at this uh, you know from the outside focusing in and obviously time warner has an unbelievable amount of content and and shows that that it can bring forward but you know at&t uh you know hasn't been the the biggest dog in the fight it's seemingly uh you know in the in the media industry in general obviously they're going to benefit from this but, you know, they still have a long way to go to, I think, really be challenging uh, the Comcast and the Verizons of the world. Hey, yes. Matt? So, yes. So, this, you know, the point Eric made about choke points is important, right? And, and, and the T-Mobile Sprint merger is one in which there are four players in the industry. If they merge, they become three. There are no – the market boundaries are not shifting. You don't have new players coming in. And so there is a sense that the, the firms that remain are the choke points. And when AT&T acquires Time Warner and has all that content, they are the choke point, yeah. and therefore they can exert a lot of power. What's, what's interesting here, though, in sort of response to that, is that the firm that deals with the customers, meaning the one that the, the choke point, the pipe firm, they actually face substantial costs. And so when they make money through their telecom internet service and through selling content bundles, they actually have customer service costs, customer acquisition costs, dispute costs, and so forth. On the other hand, when they supply content through licensing deals to their competitors, that's just good margin. It doesn't impose a lot of cost on themselves. So I think because of that, there will still be incentives for these big conglomerate firms to share content on each other's platforms, right? So, so AT&T Time Warner will offer its content on Comcast, and the Comcast platforms will offer, you know, to the extent the NBC uh, content on the AT&T Time Warner problem uh, platform. And so things really will not be that different from what they are today. And I think this is also the argument that this is why we cannot argue that prices will definitely go up because both platforms will have an incentive to offer content on the other platform. It's actually the more lucrative part of the business. Yeah. Uh, you know, one observation I think worth making is that uh, communications markets create a set of rather unique pro problems. I mean, one of the things about digital content is that it never gets used up. You can license yeah. it an infinite number of times. Uh, when Bork was writing, you know, his his uh, 
his whipping boy was Ford and Autolite, where Ford acquired a spark plug manufacturer. It was a vertical merger, and it was condemned on the theory that Ford would obtain exclusive rights to Autolite, and Bork pointed out, well, that's exactly what you expect to happen from a vertical merger. Firms right. deal exclusively with each other because the Autolite becomes part of Ford. Uh, content is different because we... Customers expect content to be licensed broadly. That is, they want HBO even if uh, the carrier that they subscribe to is not an HBO owner. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I fear from a lot of uh, vertical mergers in this industry is that we are going to get silos. That is, we're going to get firms that have their own content, and in order to get that content, you are going to have to subscribe to their service. Uh, and uh, that is going to put up a certain amount of customer resistance because if, you know, if, if HBO is not owned by any backbone supplier, then its incentive is to license to everybody. On the other hand, once HBO is owned by a cable company or a satellite company, uh, the, those incentives change, and whether it licenses to rivals or not is uh, an open question, depending on, on the facts. Uh, but we can no longer be assured that everybody's going to be able to get HBO. And isn't that if you get those silos developing, that's when you potentially get the, the harm to the companies like Slingbox, like Hulu, that are doing the TV as well. Correct? Oh, yeah, the government pushed that very hard. You know, these are these little <clears throat> bundles are all licensed programming, like YouTube, for example, which right. licenses its programming in. Uh, they have been extremely attractive. Uh, on the market, particularly to people under 40 or so. That is the one area that's really growing in this market. Uh, and if, uh, if content is tied up, it's going to be hard for these uh, skinny bundles to deliver the programming that their customers want. Eric, what do you see as the future of some of those companies, the, the smaller ones that are that are in this? And, and because they are making inroads right now in drawing a, a lot of people to their services. So I think they have to grow quickly enough, either organically or by combining, so that they have bargaining power to fight back against something like AT&T, Time Warner. Uh, so that AT&T Time Warner, when it makes the uh, does the calculation Herb's talking about, well, do we do better by keeping HBO to ourselves? Sure, we give up licensing fees, but maybe people switch from Hulu to us. When they make that calculus, the, 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 if the other side has enough viewers and would pay big enough licensing fees, then the content will remain available to all of the channels and whatever channel the customers want. So I, I think the future, you know, the future whenever an industry gets bigger, more powerful players is that the other people had better combine and get their negotiating power up to par or else they could be just squashed. Hey, Matt? Yeah. Uh, I think on that front, those there, there are lots of firms that do got slinged. And, you know, that there are too many firms in that business. And the problem is they are all consolidators of content. They do not have their own content. So they will have to do what Netflix and Amazon uh, video has done in the last several years. They will need to make their own content. And given their size and profitability, that's unlikely. And therefore, they will need to consolidate. 
And, you know, in terms of the calculus that Eric talked about and we discussed earlier, that is the core point that what are the economic, what's the economic analysis behind sharing the content you own as a platform with your competing platforms? And the way I'm thinking about it is, for instance, if you could acquire one customer from the competitor, by withholding content, you can cause one customer to move towards you for every five that you lose the licensing opportunity for. That's sort of not attractive because the margins are really high on the licensing. And for the customer that you move, you will have bigger margin in an absolute sense, but you would also have higher cost. And so that will not compensate for the five or four or six for whom you lost licensing revenue. So my feeling is that the pressure will not come on these, you know, on the slings, will not come from AT&T and Comcast. It will come from the fact that they do not have their own content. And so they're easily replaceable. No one really values them. They could, you know, customer could go to the next sling. And so their pricing power is going to remain very low. You know, that argument actually makes me wonder if the merger shouldn't have been blocked. The argument that what you have to have is content, that content is super important. The government made that argument. It it even cited um, people saying that uh, Turner has must-have content, which, of course, Turner said, well, that's just marketing talk. And the judge said, (laughs) yeah, I think that's just marketing talk. Um, But the fact that people are spending huge amounts of money, the the judge said that Netflix uh, spends more creating content even than Time Warner, $8 billion. Um, The fact that so much is being spent to control original content makes me wonder if I should be more worried about the fact that uh, Time Warner's contract uh, content is going to be under AT&T, not less worried. Yeah, but if I may interrupt, Herb, I would go back to what you really said very eloquently in November, which is that no one can really prove beyond reasonable doubt that those negative harms would occur. They are possible and plausible. Right. But, but there's, you know, it, Time Warner is not a huge or dominant content owner. You do have Netflix. They're making more films this year than any studio, Hollywood studio. They may, they're investing more. You have Amazon. You have Apple coming up with its own studio. So the, the notion that there's content dominance being acquired and therefore will be exerted to withhold content I don't believe in that right now. So as as long as the Netflixes of the world continue to do their own content and make that investment, Haymont, your, your concern is is really not there about uh, about the cost issue coming up and and really being a problem. That's right. And in fact, you know, there is the point uh, Eric made a little earlier, which is what we call double marginalization. That when you get vertical mergers, you get efficiencies. Uh, that is a downward price pressure. Another downward price pressure will be that AT&T Time Warner can offer more effective bundles that combine internet service and content. So, you know, there will be some effect to lower prices. There will be some forces towards higher prices. They will be a little more aggressive in their pricing, in their licensing deals. But on the net, I think it it really, it, it will not substantially affect prices at the moment. Uh, on the other side, you have the Disney-Fox merger coming up for discussion. And I think there, again, their argument will be that they need to be a more powerful content player. 
because on the one hand you have the Netflixes becoming bigger content players, and then you have AT&T Time Warner that is becoming integrated, and therefore Disney Fox needs to be more of a content powerhouse to survive in this very changing market. Well, Hema, do we know that it's going to be Disney Fox or is it going to be Comcast no. Fox? Right? <laughs> we don't even know that at this point. The, the money is that, of course, Comcast will make a bid. Uh, they've done that in Europe already. There's yeah. a very strong chance that they will want to do that because they then want to be uh, parallel to AT&T Time Warner in terms of being uh, powerful both in delivery and in content. Which, which then, Herb, that opens up a question that, I mean, we've kind of touched on a little bit, but do you think that, that this deal, the AT&T Time Warner deal, will open up other deals? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about the potential of Disney Fox or Comcast Fox and, and other ones that may be in there, but could this really start to kind of open the gates a little bit? I think there's two historical facts. Number one is that a government loss does, in fact, trigger more merger activity in yeah. that particular market. I think the other fact is that parties tend to overread that. Uh, the government has lost cases and within two or three years it's bounced back and it's had long uh, winning stre streaks. And I, I'd say my warning here is don't overgeneralize from this rather fact-specific case uh, to all other cases, and in particular, don't generalize from vertical cases to horizontal cases, uh, where you know the law is much better established, where we've got a fairly up-to-date set of guidelines uh, and uh, more settled, more settled legal traditions. Great having you all with us today, Herb. Great seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. Great, we appreciate it. Hamont, hey, Eric, great to have you on the phone. Thank you both. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Herbert Hovenkamp from here at the University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton School, Hamar Bagava of UC Davis, and Eric Gordon of the University of Michigan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.